Hello, and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host Rob and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I am Rob. Hi, I'm Lori. And we're back again with yet another deep dive into an album from 1989. And I got to pick this time. Yay. And apparently I picked one you're not all that familiar with. No, I'm really not. I can't say that I've ever listened to most of these tracks. This one, I guess, came out of left field a little bit, but that's kind of the fun of this show. You never know. Because Alternative encompassed so much back then that it's pretty much an open door we can walk through and pick anything we want out of the library. Well, why don't you tell our listeners what you picked? This week, we are going to do a deep dive into the 1989 album The Seeds of Love by Tears for Fears, an album four and a half years in the making. Four and a half years and one million pounds. Depending on who you ask. Right. So this was, I know, the band's third studio album, right? Uh, that is correct. You said, uh, what, four and a half years? So Songs from the Big Chair was 82? Five. 85. Okay. Early 85. Got it. Got it. Boy, that <laughs> I screwed that up. <laughs> the official release date, according to book here, is February 25th, 1985. All right, well, let's talk about Seeds of Love. Which did not come out until September of 1989, so there's your four and a half years. But, yeah, work on this started even as early as when they were still touring four songs from the Big Chair throughout the world. One of the people that was on tour with them for the Big Chair tour was Nikki Holland, who had formerly been the musical director for the Fun Boy 3, and she'd been playing keyboards with them on the tour. And so at that point, Roland and Nikki Holland started working some things out together. And that's where a lot of these songs began their origin it was way back during that tour when they were writing together. So after the tour, the original plan was for the band to take a break before they worked on this album. And tentatively, the date of late 87 was put into the schedule as a possible release date. Now, the band had no problem before this recording albums in that time frame and then delivering them. But in this particular case, it was not going to work out because Roland and Kurt wanted to, in their words, evolve into something bigger and more mature than what they were doing, even with songs from the big chair and their previous album, the hurting. Yeah. Because I think they were trying to get away from composing music on synths, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, they're trying to get away from the whole synth pop sound and move towards something a little more organic. Yeah, the record company basically wanted Songs from the Big Chair Part 2. They wanted them to basically recreate the entire album in terms of all the sound, all the all the style, all the lyrical 
motifs that worked for songs in the big year they basically just wanted them to recreate that and roland and kurt were the two people who were really railing against that and saying that that's not what they wanted to do at one point roland said to q magazine in 89 everybody except me and kurt felt we were onto a good thing i couldn't see it that way i believe to create you have to destroy it's painful and difficult but it's the only way i can work and he did not want to do this and just recreate the last album they did again. Well, as an artist, I mean, I got to respect that, right? But that makes it all the more interesting, some of the original choices for producers on this album. So as I understand it, they went into the studio in late 86 with producers Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley. And I can't for the life of me figure out who thought that that was a good match. I mean, they're best known for their work with Madness which sounds absolutely nothing like Tears for Fears. Kurt and Roland were really unhappy with the results, and so they scrapped those recordings in 87 and went back to their old producer, Chris Hughes. But again, it sounded like there was a creative conflict and Chris didn't really understand the direction that the boys were trying to go in, and so they ended up canning him. Yeah, the original reason for Langer and Winstanley being brought in was they were hoping for something a little more organic. Again, like you said, stepping away from the synth sound and getting back to the basics. And within a few cuts, they knew that was a mistake. And so the whole thing got scrapped. And like you said, brought in cues to get them back on cores who'd been there for the previous two albums. And that didn't work either. And in the long run, after all of these aborted sessions, they finally ended up going to David Bates, the A&R man at their label, and telling them that they wanted to produce the thing themselves. And he was edgy about it, but Roland said, look, the moment you don't like something, you tell me and we'll talk. And he let it go. And they ended up producing most of the album with a little help from one other producer, David Bascom. So because of this start and restart and restart again... Again, the rumor was that this album took one million pounds to record. In contrast, Songs from the Big Chair only cost about 70,000 pounds. So this is an exponential increase, even after, you know, four, four and a half years. I'm very curious to know if they recouped any of that. I mean, obviously they must have. The album eventually did go platinum, but... Wow, I listened to this and, you know, as good as a lot of the tracks are, I don't hear a million pounds, you know? The estimated one million pounds it cost to record it was recouped. Okay. So they did make their money back on this. Did they make any profit? <laughs> some of this one million, depending on who you're talking to, some of it's equipment that they purchased during the recording of the album which since they get to keep that in the long run, it actually stands as more as an asset than a loss. But depending on who you talk to, it's anywhere from about a half million to a million pounds recorded on this album. Even if it's a half million, that's really steep. For the time. So the album did go to number eight in the U.S., number eight on the Billboard charts, and was certified platinum. I was very surprised because like I said, other than like one song, this album wasn't even on my radar. How did it do in the U.K.? In the UK, it went all the way to number one. Well, that's the boys' native country, so I guess that makes sense. Critical response, it looks like, was mostly favorable. I think critics responded very well to the matured sound of the band, and because it wasn't Big Chair Part 2. I kind of, I, I don't know how the fans, I mean, obviously, 
if it went to number eight, then the fan reaction must have been positive, right? At least in terms of immediate sales. I don't think, I think sales fell off relatively quickly in, after the initial burst of sales that you have. You know, and that's the way any album is going to go. But yeah, it did end up going platinum, at least on the strength of the first single. And the fact that, you know, they'd already built up a lot of goodwill with the previous album. And I mean, for fans, this was a long time waiting. And that's really a danger in the music industry, especially in the 80s. If you take more than a year off, your fans may have forgotten you. They may have moved on to something else. And as we talked about in our previous couple of episodes, people's tastes were really changing in 89. You know, what was popular even the year before was like horribly out of fashion in 89. So it's a challenging time to be releasing this album. At the same point, it's a, then it's a very good thing that Roland decided he wanted to change his sound in the long run because if you released songs on the big chair in 1989, it might have just slid right under the radar. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that has to be mentioned about the creation of this album before we go into the tracks, which you'll hear plenty of this during the course of it, was the discovery of Olita Adams by the band. While they were on tour, they were in Kansas City, Missouri, and... One of the band members, Ian Stanley, went into the hotel bar one night and he saw this woman playing a piano and singing with a small combo. Went to the rest of the band and said, hey, you've got to see this woman. She's absolutely incredible. And then the rest of the band, after the show the next night, came down to catch her act and were absolutely blown away by it. And this is kind of where Roland got the idea he wanted to go back to basics. And that woman's name is Olita Adams. And if you know that name outside of Tears for Fears, she did have one major hit in the United States. It was called Get Here, written by Brenda Russell. It was in 1991 and went to number six. But she ended up not only becoming part of the recording band, but also part of the touring band as well. The discovery of her by the band was absolutely crucial to how this album turned out. This might interest you as well. What's that? One of the original titles considered for this album was Raul and the Kings of Spain, which later went on to be used as the title for their fifth album. Zen and the Kings of Bohemia was also considered. Fascinating. I'm kind of glad they went the direction they did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zen and the Kings of Bohemia. It, it, it sounds like a world music group. It, it's an interesting name. I mean, I would I would listen to it based on that. It sounds like a band that would open for George Duke at a jazz fest. Ladies and gentlemen, us away from Boston, Massachusetts, Zen and the Kings of Bohemia. Hey, shall we listen to the album, Rob? Oh, let's do, because I really do love this album desperately. I have to admit, the sequencing is a little weird, but we'll also talk about that later. Let's start off at track one. This is the second single off the album, and it's called Woman in Chains. You better love her, you better be. You better love her, you better be.
I think this is such a beautiful track. I'm still kind of wounded. It only got the number 36 on the charts in the U.S., but I understand why this wasn't necessarily tailored for heavy radio airplay. Yeah, I mean, this is more like adult contemporary, even back in 89. This is not the kind of thing that I would expect to hear on a pop station. Not to mention, there's some there's some deeper things going down here in the lyrics that don't really translate well to a hit ballad. This is not a love song. <laughs> no. So, no. No, by any means. A little underwhelmed by this one, especially as an opener. I'm so accustomed to Tears for Fears writing these anthemic-type songs, you know, that you can sing along to. This really isn't one of those at all. You know, and this is, this is really a strange way to open the album. You don't consider this to be anthemic. No, I don't. I, I consider don't. this to be a very heavy feminist anthem, actually. Well, you're not the only one that said that, because I read that in both the L.A. Times and the New York Times. They called it that as well. To me, it's missing both. It's missing the, the anthem part. I think it's also missing the feminism part. It just, it, it's very, very underwhelming to me. And this is the first song that I've also heard Olita on. And she really kind of overpowers Roland in this song. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm all for the occasional duet, but I don't know. I, I find her presence on the album, like, disorienting. Her presence is not a constant on this album. Throughout the recording sessions, there were a lot of different ways of recording each one of these songs. Some of them have these full-blown big bands behind them, and others are just Orzabal and Smith working on their own in the studio. It depends on which track you're listening to. She is a powerful presence, but I think that's why this song works. I'm really kind of shocked to see, or pardon me, I'm really kind of shocked to hear that you you don't see the feminist anthem, especially as I, a a middle-aged white male, can see it. So that's kind of I mean, weird, I guess, you know. It's just underwhelming. If you're going to call something a feminist anthem, make it powerful, man. You know, make it uplifting. And this song is neither. We must agree to disagree. And that's okay. okay. It won't be the first time, you know, and it won't be the last. There was a, an interview in 2021 with a website called Louder, where Roland Orzabal actually said that this was a song about domestic violence and domestic abuse. How his mother had worked as a stripper and his father was very controlling and abusive and would send somebody out to spy on his mother while his mother was working. And if if he reported back that she was talking to men at the strip joint, then she'd get beaten when she got home. But I don't know. I just, I don't like this one. That's all right. You know, it's instrumentally, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous instrumentally. Oh, and we need to talk about the guest musicians. Yeah, of note, Phil Collins does do some of the drum work on this. There's a few fills he does here and there. Apparently there are other studio musicians on here, but it's Phil who gets the credit on the album. And apparently they had set aside a few days for him. And when he came in and saw what they wanted him to do, he's just like, ah, I'll come in at lunch and be out of here. And <laughs> just did it in one take. Phil Collins played drums after three minutes and 32 seconds. And prior to that, it was Manu Kache. Makes sense. Manu Kache, who is uh, the drummer for Peter Gabriel, does a lot of other work on this album. He pops up here and there. And you will hear his world music influence in the cut seeds on, I think. At the end of the song, you'll also hear 
Roland singing the sun and the moon, the wind and the rain. And that is something that is going to be revisited on this album over and over again throughout the course of it. It slyly slid in all over this album. And a lot of that comes from Roland's love of astrology. And the sun is the ruler of Leo, which is Orzabal's zodiac sign. And the moon is the ruler of Cancer, which is Kurt's sign. So all of that sun and the moon, the wind and the rain, that is clever little Roland astrological pieces woven all throughout the tapestry of this album. Well, I'm dumbfounded. I had no idea that he was into astrology. Usually I'm the one that's bringing in the spooky witchy stuff, but... uh Oh, that's really cool. The student has become the student. No, that didn't make any sense. Back to the themes of this song. This song was actually featured in the movie Boxing Helena. Do you remember that movie? I remember. I haven't seen it, but I remember it. That was all Um, kinds of fucked up, man. That movie's all kinds of fucked up. That was uh, Jennifer Lynch's directorial debut, wasn't it? I think so. I don't know if it was her debut, but she did direct it. And I'm amazed you just pulled that out of your memory. Still a few gray cells kicking around in this middle-aged head of mine. All right, all right. Well, this is uh, not a not a happy song. Well, no, it's definitely not a happy song. But... And it's not an empowering song. <laughs> wow. Sorry. I don't claim to speak for my entire gender, but... I think this is the most we've ever differed on a song. What, do we fight now? What do we do? <laughs> Well, we move on to the next song. <laughs> the Queensberry rules? I mean, <laughs> what are we... Uh, come on now, woman, fight me. Fight me now. Women in chains, fight me. All right. Well, that's okay. That's okay. Because you know what? We're never going to agree on everything. But the nice part is, after we're done, I'll still like it. You'll still feel the way you feel. And everything will still be good. Well, it might grow on me. Some of the other songs have grown on me. You never know. I did not like this album the first time I heard it as a whole. I really did not. It had to grow on me like fungus. So, and the the first time I heard this was a week ago, week and week and a half ago. First time I ever heard this album. So, I have some catching up to do. Fair enough. I did the same with Jane's Addiction a few shows ago. So, all right, all right, it's all good. So, the next song on the album is called. Bad Man's Song. Let's listen. interesting song isn't it 
This is actually one of the earliest songs they started working on way back in the tour days when he was starting to put stuff together with Nikki Holland. This is one of the earliest things that started to come together. And it took forever to get done. There are so many different demos of this. It's ridiculous. It is a huge piece of work. Clocks in over eight minutes. And it is, it is, it is quite something, I think. Musically, especially. I have in my notes, this song is like Chicago weather. If you don't like it, just wait 90 seconds and it will completely change. It does change styles a lot. Yes. You told me something very interesting about what inspired this song. Yeah, the first verse, I think, is what we were talking about, where it kind of sums everything up, where it says, heard every word that was said that night when the light of the world put the world to right. Well, here's to the boys back in 628, where an ear to the wall was a twist of fate. So what was happening was during the big chair tour, they used to have a party room where everybody would go and slag off after the concert. And one night, it just so happened, it was right next to Roland's hotel room. And they were making a bunch of noise and keeping him awake. So he was going to go over and ask them to keep it down. But before he did that, he wanted to make sure he had the right room. So he put his ear up to the wall and sat there listening to a whole bunch of the crew members and everybody else on the tour slagging the band off to their management, just cussing him out and letting him have it. And he had no idea anybody felt this way, and it completely astounded him. And that is where the beginning of the song comes from, is heard every word that was said that night. He had no idea what was going on, and that's kind of where the the concept of the song came from, is that he was the bad man in this case. There's a lyric, sticks and stones may break my bones, but at least the seeds of love will be sown. So ultimately, he heard these things, they heard him, but they let him progress forward, and it's going to make sure the album gets done. I like the positivity of that lyric. Yeah, that's cool. And, you know, for a song about him being the bad man, we still have Olita doing a lot of the vocal duties again. Yes, we do. Nikki Howland and Tessa Niles and Carol Kenyon also on backing vocals. And Robbie McIntosh from The Pretenders is on both lead guitar and slide guitar. Now, kudos to them for slipping a slide guitar in here. You don't see that too much in pop music. This is also another track with Manukachi on drums here and a wonderful Hammond organ played by Simon Clark because I I love a Hammond B3. I really do. And percussion by Carol Steele, who also worked with Howard Johns on his acoustic tour of America back in 94. You know, this song, the more I listen to this one, the more it's grown on me. It's still not my favorite track on the album, but it's decent. And then, you know, finding out that they had gone through so many iterations, kind of wonder if they just maybe piece some of it together, like Frankenstein's Monster or something. I know um, Dave Bescombe commented that the final version they ended up with was almost completely unlike the original demo in every possible way because they changed it up so much. Yeah, Nikki Holland, who co-wrote this, said that it went through a whole bunch of versions before they went with this kind of jazz gospel combination thing they went with. And at one point, they even had it sounding like Steely Dan. Well, it kind of does. The intro, the intro really reminds me of something Donald Fagan might have come up with. 
apparently some of these demos are on the like super deluxe four disc spend all your money box set that they made for this album if anybody really wants to go look these up but i really do like the final product i like the orchestration of this song i love the beauty of the instruments and my hammond organ i'm a sucker for you know that hammond organs and horns that's what i love let's move on to track three then i think you know this one it's called sowing the seeds of love a fucking awesome song man i love this song went to a beautiful number two in the u.s where it only went to number five in the uk believe it or not i wonder if that might be because of the subject matter possibly and we'll get into that here mm-hmm. so yeah here's your lead-off single bold as brass and beatlesque as anything oh it's, it's it's nice to finally hear kurt smith doing some vocals on this because for the first two songs he seems to have been absent He's actually absent for quite a bit of this album. I think this is where you start to see where Roland's going to end up on his own on Elemental. This is the only song on this album where Kurt gets a co-writing credit. That's right. That's right. So sounds like there may have already been a little bit of a split going on there, you think? Yeah. Even the even a lot of the bass on this were session musicians or samples. Kurt did not have a big musical part as far as being a bassist in this album. Well, if he's got a songwriting credit, then it means he made big bucks off of it. So good for him. Um, I know that the title of this was actually inspired by the title of an English folk song called Sowing the Seeds of Love. There's like a long story about that, but I saw English folk song and that was enough for me. That's all I needed. Yeah, it was a program on BBC Radio 4 that Roland heard that was doing English folk songs. And it was by Mr. England. And that's why there's that line in there, Mr. England sowing the seeds of love. But as much as anything, this is also a huge shot at Margaret Thatcher and the fact that she was out of touch with most of society and she didn't understand what the people wanted. Hence, politician granny with your high ideals, have you no idea how the majority feels? So that's why I was wondering if maybe that's part of the reason it didn't do as well in the UK. But then again, I guess the distinction between, what is it, you said five? Five and one is not, that's not a great distinction. I think if you can get the number five with that statement, you've got a pretty good finger on the pulse of society. Yeah. You know, all these years, I never realized there's a line in the song that's actually a reference to Paul Weller. Kick out the style, bring back the jam. Paul Weller, you'll remember, used to be in the jam, and then he left and formed the style council. So. You know, that that line is equally a sly nod, I think, to the MC5 as much as it is to Ed Paul Weller. So. Pick out the jams? Mm-hmm. 
Now, now that's interesting to me because I don't think MC Fiverr is well known in the UK. You know, I loved this song the first time I heard it. I love it today in 2023. This song, this is the kind of anthemic song that I want from Tears for Fears. You know, does it say anywhere in any of your materials who did the backing vocals on this? Because there's a female voice and I can't find any credits for it. No, I've got nothing in here about anybody. Yeah. And it's a very distinctive, almost kind of operatic voice, you know? So I was wondering if you had anything, but, uh, I mean, it stands out. The part that I absolutely love, though, is right, there's that drum breakdown, and then time to eat all your words, swallow your pride, open your eyes. I love that part. I mean, I love the whole song, but I really love that part. I imagine he just loves it. He tells everybody to read books. As a professor, I support this. Sure. Read it in the books, in the crannies, in the nooks. There are books to read. Well, I mean, think about what the song is about, right? Whenever a society is trying to suppress books, what is it that they're scared of? Ideas. They're scared of knowledge. They're scared of enlightenment. They're scared that, you know, people will think for themselves and start sowing the seeds of love, right? All right. Anything you want to say about seeds of love? Because you've been kind of quiet about this one. I think this is the one everyone knows. <laughs> I'm pretty sure about that. I've been that quiet. I, I, I did my piece. I contributed my stuff, man. I, I performed my job. Okay. I hope you all see the abuse I take on, on a biweekly basis here, trying to do a good job here. She's going to cut that so it doesn't even matter. You're never going to know the pain I go through. We need co-hosting chains here. What's what the hell, man? Oh, freedom. <laughs> okay, so the next song then is called Advice for the Young at Heart. Advice for the Young at Heart. So Rob, that was the third single off of the album. It was released in February of 1990. It only reached 89 in the U.S. But a beautiful 36 in the U.K. This is another one of the earlier compositions that Roland and Nikki Holland worked on during the tour. And it's the only full lead vocal from Kurt on this entire album, which is kind of a shame because Kurt's got a beautiful voice. But by the time you get to Elemental, you'll see kind of why Roland wasn't that worried about Kurt being around anymore because he could almost imitate him perfectly by that point. But it, it I think this is a nice little song. It, 
it's funny it's released in February. I, I It's got a summery vibe to it to me. It does, and it's really kind of cheesy, almost loungy. Like, you know... I don't. I don't know how to explain it. It's um. It's fluff. <laughs> it's fluff with Kurt on vocals, but it's still fluff. Yeah, it's just about you know it's time to grow up and get things together. This is very much I think about Roland and Kurt trying to move forward, and it's voiced in the yeah, it, and it's voiced in the course of this song. And there's also. A little nod to that when Kurt sings The Working Hour is over. The Working Hour being one of the tracks from Songs from the Big Chair. You're not going to get songs from the Big Chair. We're moving on. This is what you're going to have now. So I think this song is a lot about that. Growing up and moving on and making yourself more mature. In this particular case, as a band. Putting away childish things. So to say. Yeah. And welcome to Side Do. Yes, we flipped the record over. What's next? We still listen to records. You well, do. I do. I don't. You don't have a turntable? No. Blasphemer! I got rid of my vinyl back in 91, 92. I don't miss it. I really don't. I am all digital. And you called me sick on the last show? Why are you like this? <laughs> I, I'm not a fan of, uh, of of vinyl. I I remember how crappy it sounded. Analog heads out there. I still have eight tracks. Hit me up. And we start off the second side of the album with Standing on the Corner of the Third World. Oceans fall on stony ground Passions are subdued Color of madness For the madness is the thorn that's in our side Sounds dangerous. It does, but you know, the album's starting to pick up now. Now I'm starting to like it. And it actually is a little bit about danger to a certain degree because it's about how we have a feeling of security in our own place, but the threats of life outside of those areas. It's kind of like going back to Hotel Womb by the church. It's kind of the same thing there. There's a place we feel safe. And then there's like the one foot in the outside world where everything's dangerous. And that sense of contentment we get from being in the safe place. I interpreted this to be more about like poverty. Hungry men will close their minds. Ideas are not their food. It's also as much about that as it is. It's about globalization. It, it, you know, colonialism plays a role here. There's definitely some of that. But that's part of the security we have. It was we are the globalizers we are the colonizers and that's where 
we get to stand safe instead of standing on the corner of the third world. It's that contrast. And there's a line in here that says compassion is the fashion. That is, I think, a pretty clear shot of all the charity events that were going on during that period. Because, for example, I remember like Tears for Fears did not end up going to Live Aid because they were announced before they even asked. That really irritated them. <laughs> so, ouch. Yeah, that's not cool. But here you have Olita Adams back on piano, not a vocal part on this, but here you've got your full lineup of musicians again. Manukachi back again, Simon Clark back on the organ, Carol Steele, Tessa Niles, all the good people back in the lineup again. I think this is the last song on the album where they actually have this lineup. Yeah, the end gives me the chills a little bit, that hold me, I'm crying, hold me, I'm dying. Then a very sad song, but then again, I guess Tears for Fears aren't really known for for yeah. lots <laughs> They're not of the cheer, most cheerful. Right? Mad yeah. World, yeah. I mean the name, the name for the band, Tears for Fears, yeah. I think Head Over Heels is about as happy as they get. This is more what I expected from the band. While not listed in the credits for the album, for those of you who are like really deep into like the lesser singles that ever charted. There was a UK singer by the name of Yaz with two Z's, not to be confused with the Vince Clark, Alison Moyet project, which was Yazoo over there anyway, so it wouldn't be confusing. She had a minor hit with The Only Way Is Up with a group called The Plastic Population. She is one of the backing vocalists on this song, even though she does not get a credit. So if nothing else, you've found a new song to go look up. The Only Way Is Up by Yaz and The Plastic Population. You know, I said the first episode that you recorded with me, Rob, that you are the master of the obscure, and every day you're proving that statement. That was really obscure. Can I say, I I, I, I love my forgotten singles. Okay. Hey, speaking of which, that's a new feature that you've been putting on our Facebook, isn't it? Yeah, I wanted to try and do that. There's no way we're ever going to cover everything. So I thought I would start posting a song of the day so we can get some of those little singles out there where we may never cover the album, but there's certainly songs worth listening to. So if you guys haven't picked up on that yet, I'll put one up at around noon Eastern every single day. So keep an eye out for the song of the day, song of the day, song of the day. Yeah. And that is on our Facebook face. It's on our Facebook face. It's on our page book face. Stop it. That's on our Facebook page where you were trying to go, I think. I, I didn't do anything this time. I was helping. Well, song of the day, song of the day. What, what? Song right. of the day, song of right. the day. I can't stop laughing. Here comes your what? Song of the day. Okay, so that's going to be on our Facebook page. Find us on Facebook, Accelerated Culture, because we're old fogies and we still use the Facebook. All right, the next song, I like this one. This is called Swords and Knives. When life begins with needles and pins, it ends with swords and knives.
This is another early Orzabal and Holland compilation. It was developed during some soundtracks on the tour. And it was actually inspired by a book written by the mother of Nancy, yeah, the mother of Nancy Spungen, who you may remember was maybe or maybe not stabbed to death by Sid Vicious. We don't know. We weren't there. We only know what Alex Cox tells us in the movie, and we still don't know. But it was based on her book, I Don't Want to Live This Life. So that's where the whole concept for swords and knives came from. I read somewhere that it was written specifically for the movie Sid and Nancy, but they rejected it because it wasn't considered punk enough. Didn't fit with the vibe of the film. Well, it runs over six minutes. That's definitely not punk right there. (laughs) Where do we start unpacking this one? I mean, you know, I'm a big lyrics person, so turn the tables will burn the fables, lies beneath the visions and daydreams. I love that. Fooled by now, we mystify the past like a dream it never happened. I mean, that's that that's some good songwriting there. Well, if you look at the verse that immediately follows those lyrics where it says, mm-hmm. when life begins with needles and pins, it ends with swords and knives. This is very much anti-violence, anti-war, I think, in the big scheme of things. And I think when he says, turn the tables, we'll burn the fables, lies beneath the visions and daydreams, what he's talking about is forgetting history. I think he's what he's going with here. We mystify the past like a dream, like it never happened. We glorify war. Hey, look at the great victory that we, we scored here. And it's as much I think about the bigger picture of violence as it is about one person. Well, you know, that line, when life begins with needles and pins, I mean, knowing what we know about Sid and Nancy, I mean, that's obviously an anti-drug reference, isn't it? That it leads to swords and knives. It leads to violence. At least that's how I interpreted that. Sounds good to me. I like it. Okay. Don't do drugs, kids. We don't do drugs anymore here at Accelerated Culture Podcast. We don't do them any less either. So, oh, I will point out the presence of Kate St. John of the Dream Academy on this. She plays saxophone and oboe on this record. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, she's good. So, we go from Swords and Knives into track seven, which tells you it's the year of the night. I like the way these two pieces, Swords and Knives and Year of the Knife, complement each other. And while Swords and Knives is a moody affair, Year of the Knife may be the hardest-hitting 
song on this entire album. Hard hitting is absolutely right. I mean, even just the very beginning, Hallelujah, the King is dead. I mean, how's that for an opening line? You've got four guitarists on this record. Four all battling out. Really? You've got Macintosh, who you previously mentioned. You've got Neil Taylor. You've got Roland himself. And you've got Randy Jacob, who was a member of Was Not Was, all playing guitar on this one song. Yeah, it's got balls, you know, and maybe that's where it's coming from. But we got another reference to the sun and the moon and the wind and the rain, don't we? Yes, we do. Like I said, it is interwoven throughout this whole tapestry. It is everywhere in here. You know, now you're going to have me searching through the lyrics for other arcane references. That's fine. I needed a project. This song is also another collaboration with Nikki Holland, as was the song before it. Hence why they're companion pieces to each other. It makes sense that with the same writers, they would flow into each other rather beautifully like this. But I think they're both companion pieces in terms of the anti-violence, anti-war sentiment that pours throughout both songs. But this one, I I really like this one. I love it. It's like if you listen to songs from the big chair, you know how Broken comes in between those two slower songs and just busts everything up? Shreds. Year of the Knife is broken for the Seeds of Love. I'll agree with you on that. I think that's a that's a very good observation. I thank you. I like this one, though. I like this one. I do, too. So there's a lyric in this one that actually kind of alludes to the track that's to follow. There's a line in one of the verses, they say his famous final words came from the heart of man. Sometimes we kind of call back to songs on an album. This one, I think, is kind of calling forward to the next track. The last track on side two. Famous last words. Let's listen. like that I, I like that they chose to end the album with famous last words not just thematically but also musically I think it's a really appropriate closure that's something I also mentioned at the beginning of the program was the sequencing of this album I'm really surprised that it didn't lead off with sowing the seeds of love then maybe bad man song then woman in chains I'm, I was kind of surprised that you started it off with the more of a slow burn And I think that if there's any fault in this album, it's the sequencing more than the material. I agree. But this is a fantastic way to end this album. This was also based on a book 
for them trying to get away from the intellectual side of themselves. They still had to go back to a book for something, a book called The Fate of the Earth by Jonathan Shell. It's about two lovers deciding what they would do if there was a nuclear attack. And this is what this song is about. Another Orza Ball, Nikki Holland collaboration, by the way. Oh, God, this is so beautiful. And, you know, you mentioned this book about the nuclear war, and that was kind of a theme of a lot of songs in the 80s with the Cold War. That first verse actually reminded me a little bit of modern English, I melt with you. After the wash before the fire, I will decay, melt in your arms. The first verse is also interesting because if you listen, you can hear some studio chatter in the background during the first verse, which was accidental, but ultimately just got left in there. You can hear it. It starts, the first thing you can hear way in the background is a little voice that says, let's take five minutes. And for about the first verse, there's a lot of noise and chattering going on in the background, but there it is. Your little peek into the inner workings of the studio. But I like it because I think it gives it that kind of organic feel. And I think maybe the previous track with that applause that they put in there, maybe that's what they were going for too. I'm not sure there. This is less jarring than the applause though. Did I read somewhere that this was at one time one of the titles they were considering for the album, Famous Last Words? I did not run across that in my research, but it's very possible it could be true. And if it was true, I think that kind of gives us an idea of where Kurt and Roland were at this point. You've read a lot more about this than I have, but I have a hunch that they probably realized that they were about to break up or that this was this was going to be it for those two, yeah? Kurt had pretty much announced that he was leaving before they even did the tour. They just kept it quiet. Gotcha. Tom Waits actually was originally asked to sing the final verse for this. You're kidding. Oh, no. my God. That would have been amazing. I have here his exact response, which I will read to you verbatim. Tears for fears? They can fuck off. Wow. So, not a fan, I guess. Wow. <laughs> the other thing I love about this song is that build towards the end when, once again, we revisit the sun and the moon, the wind and the rain motif, where it begins all of our love and all of our pain. That build right there is one of the best parts of the song, only to have it drop back down into that silence at the end. Oh, God. It's a perfect way to end the album. Absolutely. This is this track, I think, for me, makes up for a lot of the stuff that was lacking. So this was really an interesting choice, Rob. This is not one that I would have picked. It is growing on me a little bit, and I have a hunch it's going to grow on me more. Some of the songs are still a little underwhelming, but... Gotta start somewhere. Yeah. I Like I said, somewhere in the show, I it did not all hit me the first time through. I was kind of confused after a four-year wait. I didn't know what to expect. It wasn't like when Boston came back after, like, what? Right. Seven years in the 80s and pretty much gave you the exact same album they'd done the first two times, which there's nothing wrong with that. But... For those of us who might have been sitting around expecting another songs from the big chair, this was, yeah, a bit of a jar. But over time, listening to it, listening to the the orchestration, the lyrics, it really did start to grow on me more and more, and it became one of my favorite albums. So I'm curious, then, what's your favorite track on the album? Again, a tough one for me, but when it comes right down to it, it's always been Famous Last Words. It always has. 
And when I saw this tour back in 90 and they did that live, it was just no, you'd, people weren't even breathing. You could not hear a sound when they were playing this. That is my favorite. Absolutely famous last words. Although, ooh, yeah, no, it's, it's famous last words, period. Final answer. Okay. And for you. I'm going to go with selling the seeds of love. Got to go with the the one that I know the best and that I that I listen to the most. But um, wow, going but, out on a limb there. Yeah, but famous hot last take words. everybody hot take. Um, but um, famous last words is pretty amazing though, and if it weren't for the fact that I already love sowing the seeds of love so much, if I were listening to the whole thing for the first time with virgin ears, I think I would probably pick that. Let's talk about the next episode for a second. We aren't going to say what the topic is going to be. We're going to hold on to that because we want that one to be a surprise. Yeah. It's a secret. I wanted to scream it from the rooftops, but you wanted to keep it a secret, so that's fine. The other thing that we're doing here, because we do have the holidays coming up, is, Rob, you and I have decided we're going to take an extra week off. We need it. We've earned it. So rather than releasing our next episode in two weeks, which would be December 30th, New Year's Eve Eve, we'll be releasing it on January 6th. So that will be our first episode of 2024. Very excited for that and excited for some other things that we've got in the works for 2024, as I'm sure you are, Rob. We've already got things lined up at least through 1990 for you guys. We we are really plowing through the albums and looking for great stuff to bring you. And we've got a few other irons in the fire, too, that we're working on. So we'll probably have a few announcements as, uh, as the year progresses. Yeah. Oh, I hope so. Good. Announcements well, are good. Yeah. So announcements that- are our friends. Okay. Announcements. We'll see everybody in 2024. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. It's a goodbye from me. And that's a goodbye from me, everybody. Until next time, stay alert, trust no one, and keep your laser handy.